Hey everyone, welcome back to How AI Built This. As always, this episode is brought to you by Cathcart Associates, technology recruitment wonders. They didn't even pay me to say that other than my basic salary. Thank you to them for making this possible. Uh, even during these crazy times, they've, they've encouraged me more than ever to do this. So, uh, big shout out to them. Very excited to say that today on the podcast, uh, I'm speaking to Leanne Fitzpatrick. Um, she's the head of data at Hello Soda. We've been trying to tee this up for ages. Uh, however, last year Leanne moved to the States, um, which we'll get into on the podcast, and um, making it harder for us to sit down and chat. Obviously, with everything going on, everything's remote anyway. Um, so I managed to do this from my house in Edinburgh and with Leanne in Austin, um, which is pretty cool. So if anyone doesn't know Leanne, she has been a huge part of the Manchester data scene for, for many years. Um, she's actually spoken at our Mancamel event twice. Um, she's built the data team that she currently manages. Um, she spent the last year managing them remotely. So yeah, in the podcast, I get to pick her brains on that and, and hear a bit about her story and how she got to where she is. So that's enough for me. Ladies and gents, please welcome Leanne Fitzpatrick. So thanks for coming on, Leanne. We've spoken about this for how long now? I don't know. Months? <laughs> it was like months. It was definitely before the this year, and it was obviously definitely before the COVID stuff. Yeah. I think we were figuring out how to do the remote possibility, and now it's a it's here. So. Yeah. I think one of the things when I first started, I really wanted to get like into people's offices or like they come to our office and like we just actually sit and chat over like a, a coffee or something like that I think it, it would add something to it but given COVID it means that I can stretch the kind of geographical possibilities and given that you're in Austin it makes it a lot easier so um, no thank you for coming on no, very, thank you for having me very much appreciated in fact you were one of the first guests I'd wrote on my uh, my wish list uh, which I still have somewhere which is good <laughs> <laughs> so we, uh, we always kind of kick off with some university chat, mostly because nobody ever has the same background in data, uh, which I find quite interesting. So you went to uni in Leeds. Did you grow up in Leeds or did you move to there for uni? No, I moved there for uni. So I grew up in the heart of central London. Um, nice. So definitely a London lady. Um, I think here I have the accent more than anywhere because I've kind of lost my London roots. (laughs) And then moved to Leeds. Uh, Yeah, and that's where I I went to Leeds because they were one of the very few universities in the UK where you could do mathematics and music as a genuine joint honours without doing mathematics with a few electives in music, essentially. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So I didn't know this about you, but you did. I was going to say you got a first-class degree in maths and music, which... uh, you might not think go together, but obviously you wanted to do it and it chose Leeds because of that. So what was the what was the thought process? Um, so I guess I now know the word for it. I was always a bit of a polymath. I think that's the word for it, where uh-huh. you have kind of multiple. Uh, so like my, oh my gosh, this is going a lot, back a long time. But my A-levels were the most random A-levels. It was textiles. So like making clothes is a big like hobby. History mathematics and music and my big thing was that I didn't want to sacrifice any one of those to do further maths so I couldn't get into any of the universities I wanted to do to do maths and I didn't really want to just do straight maths Um, and I'd always Mm. um, gone to a Saturday music school which as a very from a young age I'd got scholarships for and things like that in in growing up in the heart of central London Um, and so I knew that I wanted that to still be a big part of my life at that point 
And so it kind of just blossomed from there, really. I was just, I, I heard down the grapevine that there was this thing that you could do, which were joint honors degrees. And so I set about with my analytical mind, figuring out what is the university, I still remember this, <laughs> figuring out the university code for that particular math and music. So you could go and do it. And there's yeah. like six universities at the time that offered it. But Leeds was the only one that allowed you to do up to 50% in maths and up to 50% in music and you're, oh, sorry, like up to a, like, I think it was like up to, you know, 70% of either and then split it like that, but yeah. you could still do 50-50. Whereas a lot of the other universities will say like 80% maths and then 20% music. So it's kind of like, here's your maths degree with a bit of music stuck on the side. So that was where that kind of came from. Um, and I really didn't want to be tied down to, to one degree, which actually ended up having more problems than I thought maybe when I was thinking about what I wanted to do um but definitely happy that that was a kind of kept me engaged throughout my university years let's say and from so before we go into the masters but from like maths and music so I know I did like a degree it was called management and marketing but it was exactly what you tried to avoid where there was like two elective digital marketing courses and if you didn't you didn't have to choose them so like i could have still got the degree that i've got and never went to a marketing class basically so we're using like theory of music practical music or both so you could essentially choose from all of the maths uh, modules and all of the music modules and design your own course that was the most amazing thing That's i don't cool. believe lee's doesn't have the joint honors program that it used to have anymore at the sort of the end of my area so uh, a couple of years after i left 2012 2013 they they disbanded the joint honours. Um, there's still capabilities of it, but it's not, I don't think it's offered in the way it used to be. Um, there was only 13 people on my course um, of maths and music. So, um, so, that was uh, that was what appealed to me the most was just and then obviously Leeds is an awesome place to live and a really cool city so it was kind of like I I I, I won the uh, the university choice options. Did there. you know that before um, you went? Like, did you know Leeds was a really cool city, or did you just learn that? Not at all. I was a real like heart of London girl. I really hadn't left London. So Leeds um, was like, like the countryside for you. <laughs> sounds really strange like people don't believe me when I say I didn't even really get on the tube until I was like 12 or 13 I got the bus everywhere or I walked everywhere so like I didn't really obviously I, I traveled and I went on vacation with my parents but I didn't really see much of the rest of England outside apart from where like my family were from um so like I had a family yeah. in Peterborough and that was that was like the countryside to me. So yeah, Leeds was a bit like a bit countrysidey, but definitely not. No, so I didn't realise how good a city Leeds was. Um, and it, yeah. You know, it's pretty unique. Um, so that was a good win. And then, in terms of how they combine, absolutely hundred percent, mass and music definitely combine. Um, I like anybody that disputes this. I there's a separate podcast that you can go and listen to about <laughs> these theories. But you know, like uh, most people refer to like Bart chorales as the main kind of part, and then you know you have a series of rules within kind of that music structure, and then you can break those rules. So kind of that's that's kind of where a lot, and then the kind of the rhythms and all of these different parts. It's been a long time since I had to really think about all these things, but. I did both in the maths department, 
they did a the mathematics of music module which was super um, interesting and that's where I learned a lot about um, mathematicians who were really engaged with music and then my dissertation for on the music side in my final year ended up being about uh, George Burkhoff who's a 20th century American mathematician who wrote the aesthetics of music and came up with an algorithm um, for this kind of concept that there is a, a mathematical rigidity around the aesthetics of music. Um, and it's a bit of a bonkers equation. Uh, it's very simple. So I kind of went out to like disprove his theory, but also kind of support his his thoughts in the kind of early 20th century. Nice. I like it. Um, I didn't really think about it that way. But now that you've said it, actually, a lot of people that I know that are really into playing music are also quite uh i don't know, like kind of numerical for lack of a better word um yeah. you then went on to do your master's still in leeds but you dropped the music part yeah unfortunately uh at that point i then realized that i might actually need a career at some point and so the as what happens to most people the evil side of me was like uh there was a there was a time where i was doing really well in composition and i was really enjoying very much like modern composition i'm very like I, I consider myself creative and artsy in my free time. And yeah, I really wanted to do like a master's in composition. And then I had a really like bad grading on one of the pieces that I like, I put, I like shed my like, you know, blood, sweat and tears into. And I got a really bad subjective grade for it. And there was no objectivity in this at all. And I was like, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> no more music for me. It's all, you know, it's all about, um, you know, how can I be critically assessed objectively um, on the things I can do? So that was where kind of my, I guess my passion for maths came back, which is, you know, there is a right and there is a wrong. Does that um, mean that one lecturer potentially ruined the budding musician, musical career of Leanne Fitzpatrick? Possibly, but probably for a good thing. <laughs> that was probably a good thing. I don't know where that would have ever led. <laughs> no, fair enough. So I might um, have a secret I'm gratefulness there. Yeah, maybe. And you went into specifically financial maths. And then given that you moved into uh, a kind of risk role, uh, did that tie in nicely? Yeah, so I, the kind of the end of my undergraduate, I started really getting into kind of risk and risk concepts. Um, and then so that was where the my thought to go into the business school at University of Leeds was. Um, and so I, I looked at doing the financial mathematics because really again it was a it was a polymath type of course where it was the synergy between the business so like micro macro economics you know core mathematics for um and core like stochastic principles within mathematics so monte carlo theorem and black skulls methodology all of this sort of stuff and then also statistics so and then the whole course was kind of um, evaluated on how well you could program, which I don't think any of us really realized that was going to happen because I'd never programmed before that point. Um, and that was probably the most horrible part of it because they didn't really teach you to program in C++. They were just like, here's the, the all the things that you're going to do in the business school and maths and stats. And then everything that you do, you're going to have to do a programmed version of it. So you have to handwrite an algorithm and also then code it in C++. And then that's how you'll get evaluated for your mathematics parts. Um, and obviously having never 
coded before it was kind of like a trial by fire yeah i was gonna so, say uh, like I, i'm not a, i'm not a developer by any stretch but i know from speaking to a lot of people that c plus plus isn't one that you would just like dabble in it wasn't easy I, I think we had like five intro lectures and then that was it and then you were left to your kind of own devices so it you know, it was it, it was good and it taught me a lot of the principles I have now for kind of, you know, teaching yourself things and kind of, um, you know, <laughs> I guess crying until you figure it out, you know, and not getting too stressed about that as well. Um, so, I, you know, and that's where that kind of blossom from, I guess. I, I, I now refer to it as probably the data science masters before data science was a thing. Because again, it's like, well, before data science masters existed. So, you know, it was business, maths and stats and programming, and you were evaluated across all of those evenly, and had to kind of combine them together. Yeah. So um, I think that's why it appealed to me. And then I really wanted to be a risk um, analyst in the sense of uh, like the stock market risk. So I got really into like, uh, this is all sorts of kind of concepts in maths where you have distributions and if you have coupled distributions then um, these are called copulas and there's ways to mathematically model those and they are better ways of uh, like understanding the risk um, and when you stress test a, a portfolio and so I got really excited about that and that was probably the most exciting part and that's where the risk idea blossomed but then I realized I didn't want to move yeah. back to London so I wanted to stay in Leeds so that's where the risk part came out but it wasn't the type of risk that necessarily um i'd learn on on the in the masters let's say it wasn't kind of a portfolio risk management it was more yeah. consumer risk yeah okay um oh yes that's exactly quite nicely so yeah you finished uni and then like you just said you went to stay in leeds and i think it's still true now but i imagine back then as well co credit were one of the kind of bigger employers in leeds right yeah, absolutely. And they weren't so far from the university itself. They had a really, they've got a really nice location there on, I believe it's One Park Lane, if my memory serves me right. So, you know, it was a, I think it was like 45 minutes for me to walk to, to work. It was, it was a, it was a great little location just off the side of the city centre, but still, you know, accessible into the city centre. So that was, that was great from that side. And also, yeah, they've got a big, They've got a big office there. They're now TransUnion, um, if I recall oh, okay. correctly. So, so yeah, they 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 were a credit bureau essentially called Credit or Credit Bureau, and so that's where I was just looking for risk based jobs within Leeds. And uh, yeah, they they kindly offered me my first opportunity. Yeah, and I've asked this a couple of times, and I can't remember the answer to to everyone. Um, but there's been a couple of people that started in risk. Is risk analyst now been replaced? by the title of data scientist, or would you still be called a risk analyst doing that job now? You would be called a data scientist. I prefer the term like uh, predictive analyst or maybe like advanced analytics and insights, that type of, it's more that type of role. It's really where you're building a lot more logistic yeah. regression uh, models um, and you're doing, Back then, it was a lot of uh, logistic regression, some decision trees, um, anything that essentially could be picked up and uh, coded easily into a back-end system, like, because you're dealing in the banks with a lot of, like, legacy systems that can't deal with anything other than, like, one plus one, for example. So anything that was kind of a predictive algorithm that could be very much is... Um, clear to be able to programming so no no kind of black box methodologies was what we were building and a lot of like analytics around why a consumer with particular um 
features within their credit portfolio or credit profile would end up um, being more likely to be a default risk or a risk of taking, say, a mobile phone or an auto finance or not getting approved for a mortgage and really explaining. It was a lot because of all the kind of regulations in that system. It's a lot of like explaining why the data is saying what it's saying. So it's a lot more kind of rigid in that way. Yeah, okay. Um, I think there's a company in Manchester, I can't remember what what they're called. I'm sure they call those people now like decision scientists or something like that, um, or decision yep. analysts or something, which maybe is a nice hybrid of both. It's not even on my list of questions, but it is probably worth getting into. I think the title of data science is almost, or data scientist is getting so murky now, right? I think we've seen that oh, over the last, certainly over the last five to six years as like, I, I mean, I remember after leaving um, Cool Credit, I remember a lot of, you know, a couple of years after that, then suddenly seeing one day on LinkedIn, everybody's job titles was data scientists, yeah. no matter if they've just been like analyst or, you know, insight analyst. And I think we could go on and on about this concept. And a lot of people talk about it. I think where I, I looked to the future with hope in the sense that we're already seeing a kind of a, a dispersion of the types of roles within the data science, data engineering, um, and kind of data architecture world, where then you're getting kind of micro groups of individuals within that. And I think that's, that's the thing that I hope for next is that we've kind of gone through that phase where we've kind of got a blanket term for everything under the sun to do with data analytics and data science. And now we can kind of segment again back into, okay, I'm a data scientist who specializes in deep learning and natural language processing for chatbots. Yeah. And, you know, we end up with these kind of, you don't want to specialize people too much because the whole point of the data science term is that you are not a specialist. You know, you're a, you, you kind of have multiple skills, but the thing is not everybody can be a super data science generalist. So it, it gets complex. I think that, that question is, is, is hard to answer. All I can say is that I hope, I hope in the future we won't just have like masters of data science. We'll have like masters of data science with respect to some, you know, some like maybe unsupervised methods or, you know, particularly uh, natural language processing or with respect to image processing. And I think we're already seeing some of that. Yeah, I think you can see when you've like, so, I mean, what, where you work now is a good example of the NLP stuff. And then we've had a few clients over the years. There, there was one in Manchester that was uh, kind of, you had to have computer vision experience regardless of anything else. And it wasn't that they were being picky, but like that was their kind of area of specialism. So that's where they wanted to bring skills in. And arguably the person that they found could just be called a data scientist. But I think he uses the term like computer vision engineer or something like that, because that's the thing he wanted to focus on. Um, so yeah, I think there's good examples of some people doing that. And maybe it's not needed everywhere, but I think the problem was like, yeah, you're right. Everyone was a data analyst and then the next day, or even like a BI developer or someone building dashboards, which is a totally separate job, but they just wanted to get onto the kind of data science bandwagon. Um, but anyway, we kind of segued there. So yeah, you, you stayed with Cognitive for a few years. And then did you, I know, obviously, Hello Soda in Manchester. Did you move or did you stay in Leeds for a bit? No, I actually moved to Manchester. So um, yeah, we, we took the, the plunge um, on Hello Soda when it was still a startup and, yeah. and moved to, to Manchester just because the journey would have been pretty much impossible without a car. So um, yeah, I completely moved to Manchester, which was 
again another great city to actually end up in yeah so I was going to say you've, um, you've, yeah. you've absolutely nailed cities from London to Leeds to <laughs> Manchester to Austin like like if you end up moving to somewhere else to like in your life you're going to have to really pick it carefully Spoil for choice so far um, but yeah you mentioned there that Hello Soda was definitely a startup so was there a kind of a uh, I don't know, like a slight risk to, to moving from Leeds to Manchester, working for a pretty stable employer, doing something you knew you liked, to joining a complete startup? Or was that the whole point, that it was something kind of exciting? I think that was the whole point. I'm very much a risk-adverse person. And I, so it was one of those decisions that I made where I kind of just threw both feet in the deep end and just went for it. And luckily... Um, my husband, um, who was still working in Leeds at the time for the University of Leeds, was willing to, uh, to to support us and say, yes, let's do it. Let's move to Manchester. We moved to Manchester. He was then working kind of remote and still going into the office at the University of Leeds. So I was lucky that we kind of had, um, we kind of were in agreement, let's say, because obviously if it was just me, there's just kind of I can just make that decision and go for it so um and I think yeah. I was just at that point where I don't know what the right word but I not bored but I just you know I, I wasn't getting any enthusiasm or real excitement for my day job anymore and I think when you get like that you you know you have to take those big plunges to say okay I I can continue to play the safe option and just you know float around in kind of this risk analytics world or I can completely make a huge big step and what's come going to come with that is this big move to to Manchester um if I really want to make it work because I, for me I knew that 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 journey time personally it was like it would have been like two and a half hours each way on right. public transport would have just it would have just killed me so I was like this if I want to do this and I, I I feel like I'm you know I'm bought into this this idea and this concept and the company and the people in the company then I'm going to you know, I'm going to really commit to it. And so, yeah, we, we, um, and ironically, I remember chatting to James a couple of years later, um, our CEO, and he was like, I couldn't believe when you had decided to just move your whole family to Manchester. <laughs> and when we were still such a small business yeah. and we were all like, you know, you know, there is that point where you kind of, I mean, for me, I just kind of, really strangely obfuscated the the idea that it wouldn't work and just was like this is going to work it's got to work and if it doesn't work then you know so be it but um luckily it works no <laughs> so. I, I like that story and also i mean uh, i sometimes take for granted people might know what certain companies do so hello soda looks mm. a lot different now than it did then but what, i suppose how how was it sold to you at the time and then also kind of from a company point of view kind of what what do you guys actually do just in case anyone doesn't know who they are yeah so you hit the nail on the head in the sense of like obviously we've been on this journey for over five years now so we look very different as a business uh, now to them but the ori original seed of the idea was when our um, ceo was sitting in a lecture or a kind of a conference talk from um uh, and i, I i'm gonna really apologize because i might completely misquote this so yeah, um, if you would like the real story, definitely go and speak to to James Blake and Hello Soda. But um, it, it was essentially listening to um, somebody, a psycholinguistics um, analyzer who was using text mining processes to understand if people were at risk of kind of committing terrorism or, or um, kind of very um, hazardous acts, let's say. And so 
the the idis burned for for him was around like okay how could this be reapplied to kind of the risk market so back the, even just back you know kind of in, in 2013 2014 the the data we were using was very still like static it was like and i think most of it is still to this day you know it's a monthly reporting cycle in the credit system everything's kind of on these legacy systems it's really difficult to migrate off of because it would just cost you more to do that than it would like be worthwhile so um you've got all these kind of issues around um, kind of the uh, use of kind of the quality of data and the amount of data that we've got going now. Um, and anybody that is in the data um, sphere kind of listening into this will absolutely know what I mean. I can We can talk about all the, you know, like terabytes of data that's being um, created every every second to every minute of the day. But um, there's, no, there's no framework for that to kind of be introduced into the kind of dis- risk decisioning cycle within the kind of credit industry and and also within the kind of the risk industry so where this kind of spawned from was what is what are the options with alternative data for us to to kind of capitalize to be able to say okay how can we improve the 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 process and the journey for the consumer and this is particularly because um when I worked for the credit bureau, the, the sheer amount of people that don't have a footprint. So we're talking about like new to country, uh, students, um, anybody that's kind of roams around the country a lot. These, so very tra- uh, transient uh, individuals. Uh, so like myself, having moved from the UK to the US, um, that was a, like a huge issue when it came down to like proving who I am and not having like social security number, et cetera, et cetera. Um, not having a mobile phone. You need a mobile phone to get a social security number but you can't get a mobile phone without a social security number so you're stuck in this like these weird loops and like essentially so that was where we were born from was we knew there was this like big percentage of people and that percentage of people was only going to get more as we were going into this kind of digital age um where the world is you know obviously right now feels very small because we're kind of in quarantine but, but you know um obviously the the you know the ability to get two different places has become easier and easier so people are very much more transient um and so you know our idea was around how can we support those people who don't have that footprint essentially and how can we use alternative sources of data about them that they can essentially carry with them to say okay I can validate who I am because I'm a real person based on these senses of information so that was kind of where the 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 background came from hopefully I've done that story justice (laughs) Um, and then kind of obviously then different concepts came in the kind of we've got a bit of a marketing angle around the types of data we use from kind of text processing so like natural language processing so we do like interest modeling and things and so the kind of the the business has grown and shaped differently over the last five years um, based on the different kind of things that we do are very much now yeah. we're focused on kind of a global digital identity solution so really bringing in different sources of data such as um uh, like uh, utility scanning and bill scanning as well as kind of um scanning you know, a photo id document to really help um you know confirm the the validity of that individual and really what our, our kind of uh, what we're trying to do is bring in all these different sources of data to then summarize who the individual is so that if you those certain pieces are missing that's okay because we've got enough of a footprint about you to say it's okay because 
what what happens with the, the bureaus is that most people that are not able to be verified won't be able to be verified at any one of those different credit bureaus. Yeah, okay. So from the kind of company point of view, who, other than an individual that gets to be kind of validated, if you like, mm-hmm. and, uh, does the company have to try and sell that to like governments and local authorities and credit bureaus rather than individuals though? Yeah, so we're a B2B business in the yeah. sense that we will sell our solutions to uh, to clients who have some kind of uh, interactional journey with a consumer. So that customer will essentially come on to, say, a digital um, journey. So that could be a shopping experience. And let's say there's a billing address that's different to a shipping address. We could be that third party that comes in to help verify that that person is not a, a likely fraudulent consumer. And so we'll come in and, and ask the consumer yeah, okay, to give it. consent to different sources of data. Yeah, okay. No, that makes sense. And when you joined, like we said, I mean, it was so much different to what it is now. What was it like for you being in that kind of like startup mode and been speaking to people in similar situations where everything just changes like so rapidly? You have an idea one day and then the next day essentially it's deployed. Like, what was that like? And and has that changed much? It's definitely changed a lot. Um, I think going back to the, there's really good things and really bad things. What's really good about where we are now is we've kept all that leanness and that agileness within the the team. Sometimes, you know, um, you know, things can be deployed a bit too quickly, but now there's kind of a structure and a process around that, so that you know everybody knows what's happening. Um, certainly within the kind of you know. Uh, technical team so that's both data and engineering and kind of our infrastructure team as well so everybody's aware of what's going on I think in the early days it's just I mean you're all rolling up your sleeves you're all working a lot of hours to try and push things over the line quickly to get things done you know um you yeah anyone that's been in that situation will know that you know whatever clients say sometimes can come first depending on where you are in your journey and that can be um, a really good thing, but it also can be really difficult to manage. So kind of where we've come, you know, uh, after that first year of kind of that is understanding, okay, what what are the client priorities that we actually should focus on as business? What's good for us as well as for our clients and working those things out. So there's a lot of like, there's been so many, I, I, I guess the uh, I'll say one of the crazy stories is that like, um, one of the days I came in and I had a big piece of like work for a client going on and um, the entirety of the database had been encrypted and there was no longer any functioning um, kind of extraction, transform or load process, so ETL process to get that data out <laughs> of now the encrypted database without like another a substantial amount of like a month's work essentially. And that had taken place yeah. overnight and somehow that hadn't been communicated. Uh, even though we were only five people or something. Oh, and no. so it was, just, it was just like, okay, like, um, you know, so things like that are the, the kind of the crazy things that happen, obviously, from a security standpoint. Absolutely, we need our, you know, our databases encrypted. Yeah. But now there's no way to get the, like, to, like, figure out, a, you know, a really good, robust security um, conscious solution to get that data out of the encrypted database. 
is a huge amount of work. So it's kind of these playoffs between each other that, you know, what are we prioritizing? And and fortunately, one of the big things I will say about having worked for Hello Soda is we've always been kind of a security first mindset from our infrastructure up. So we're very much like focus on our infrastructure and the way the security measures that we want around that and kind of very much like best in class from a security standpoint. And then building off the back of that and that's one of the things that i think has really changed my mindset because coming from you know this credit bureau where all i was doing was building kind of logistic regression or decision trees and then like literally handwriting the the algorithm out to like hand over to the customer is a completely different you know skill set mindset change to being very deep in the weeds with engineering and infrastructure and really understanding um you know all these different all these different things so like for me that five-year journey is i can't even describe it but the learning curve was very much uh you know a, a very strong high angle in the first couple of years yeah no i bet i think we spoke to someone recently now this is really bad i keep forgetting who the people are um not who the people are what conversation it was uh but someone had said if they hadn't if they stayed where they were in terms of like a big company maybe like a call credit opposed to going to somewhere like other soda like you almost like the five years you've been there is probably worth 10 if not more years in a different company is that fair absolutely like they just i i think again like with all things there's good and bad things about that right now i guess i i you know in the early days i was wearing so many different hats you know i was doing pre-sales and post-sales consultancy support as well as building models as well as kind of understanding the, what the product that we're trying to offer our clients is as well as you know kind of being the liaison between sales and the technical team so and so you end up wearing, and now and that isn't even half the hats I was wearing. I was also like, uh, you know, it's very fun, like super, like, you know, fun in the early days where you could be, you know, we would do different like, you know, monthly quizzes or like um, quarterly. And, you know, we still have all of that, but it was a different kind of, you know, we, we could be more lax with our, <laughs> our jokes that we told, let's say back then, because we were so small oh, and really everybody this, yeah. knew you know and so there was it was a, a and so i'd be that person that would be the you know do the like the christmas presentations that you know would poke fun at people and things yeah. like that so you know it was, it was like i was doing so many different things that you know super invigorating but then like coming to where i am now there's a number of skills that perhaps i've missed out on because i wasn't focused on just one core area yeah. and i think now that's the bit that i'm really having to look at and i've definitely been looking at for the last couple two and a half years really is like what's my like my core range of skill sets because i've been so all of this kind of breadth of kind of skills so um and uh, as awful as it sounds you know like knows many things but not not good at any one thing sometimes i'm really worried that that's that's like me no, and i'm like ah like yeah i'm sure i'm sure it's not i know i do know what you mean and uh i suppose kind of just on that one of the hats that you did wear and still do uh is kind of building your own team uh which again is something not everyone will get to do in their careers just depending on where they end up working i mean how did you find that early on and was there anything that happened or you kind of noticed quite quickly that is maybe even still like it's kind of stood you in good stead until like right now um just from hiring and trying to build a team yeah absolutely so i mean building a team is is difficult like going from being an individual contributor to management 
I, I, I don't think anyone would say that that's an easy shift to make, even if you have the best of support networks and the best business to help you with that. It's just an individual shift that you've got to completely go through. And, I, you know, I can safely say that I, I probably wasn't and I don't think I was great at, it at the beginning. But the good thing is, is that I feel like I did have a kind of a support structured there and also like that's where I really leaned into um the Manchester community and the Manchester data community that was growing at the kind of same time that I was developing and kind of growing as into this kind of team lead let's say and and hiring people and then yeah. the great thing that was happening was that globally there was this recognition for hey we've got this I mean it wasn't just like going into a management role um, and building a team, it was also building a team of people that we hadn't quite defined as a as a as a um, as a globe what data science actually was, and yeah. like what the skill set that you needed, and what did we need as a business, and all these like so there wasn't just the kind of the normal things kind of moving from that individual contributor role to a manager. It was also the fact that like the type of people we were hiring for, a didn't really fully exist because there wasn't like a rigid like a rigid path for people to come through and also yeah. um that you know we can't quite define what we wanted because everybody else was figuring it out and so i think we were in that in that forefront of like figuring these things out and, and i you know and figuring out what were the skill sets that people needed did you know and we were looking at docker back in 20 at the end of 2015 that wasn't even something that went on my on my cvs for example until like i think 20 end of 2017 early 2018 because i didn't even think about that really being a data a data skill set that you needed in my mind it was just something that the rest of the technical team would support you with so yeah. these types of really like like um important concepts for people that are in that position to be making those decisions about but also don't seem something that you'd think about at the time like and what was our hiring process so i was kind of like literally having to figure it all out all at once yeah. but luckily could lean into that manchester network and could lean into what was going on and that's where i really started to use twitter to figure out like is there anybody else out there doing this type of thing and you know reading a lot of blogs and that's where i realized actually like yeah it was true you know like and maybe i i think my big regret was not giving back in like in terms of writing up but i'm not a writer but hopefully i i feel like i i'm more of those people that likes to go out and just talk about these things and that was what kind of really spearheaded that for me was just having these conversations with other people after say going along to a meetup or uh, or presenting at something and just chatting to somebody and being like oh I haven't thought about that that's a really useful thing to think about so that I think I've gone off on a bit of a tangent but it wasn't it definitely wasn't easy and I think the biggest thing now is just I think it's a little bit not easier, but I think there's more of a kind of a concept of what a data scientist is. And that's also known by, you know, the kind of both the candidate and the employer and also um, the recruiter within. And I think there's a, some more alignment, which makes life a little bit easier on the hiring side. And then now you've also yeah. got that kind of retainment side as well, which is how do you grow and establish, like, how do you keep your staff engaged? How do you um, get them working on exciting projects when maybe there's not always necessarily exciting things to be worked on these these types of concepts of uh, how do you grow people within a very small business um yeah. when they maybe want to become more senior or they want to manage like these again are things that i don't have all the answers for but it's just kind of being really honest with with my team and saying 
hey, like this is where we're at. Um, and I, again, I don't do that perfectly all the time, but I try. <laughs> that was an interesting chat we had. Um, we actually spoke to Tom Liptrop last night um, for a podcast, and we talk about the fact that there's not always a defined career path. So like one of the things we said was he noticed being head of data that he actually really missed just like sitting down programming because a lot of his day was like board meetings or client meetings or uh, coaching, which he really does enjoy and, and finds kind of valuable. But you're telling someone else how to do the thing that you want to do in a kind of very basic way. Um, and there, it, there's not always a really clear career path. And this is kind of tech and maybe just industry wide that, there's not really a path just to be like a very, very good senior person. Like it almost feels like you have to become head of data or team lead or whatever it might be. Um, so yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. Like how do you progress in a small company? And maybe the answer is you just get very, very good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also championing in people when they say that it is time for them to, to try something else and being okay with that. Because fundamentally, there is a lot, there's a huge amount of data science within within just the data science concept itself, like the different types of data yeah. you can work with, the different formats of data, like, and then the different types of models that you can even get into, and then how you're even deploying those. So there's so many different parts that, you know, and not one company is always going to give you all of those parts. We can definitely, I think we're good in the sense that we're working very much with previously, I guess, slightly uh, ahead of the curve, um, technologies but now like very much kind of you know the 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 best in class technologies let's say yeah. and like giving people exposure perhaps where they hadn't had that before and that's one of the things that we find attracts people to work with us is getting to work with kind of a a best in class in-house built platform that we've built ourselves and and definitely um you know exposes you to a lot of different parts of a process that perhaps you haven't had before yeah. but i also am very you know conscious and um understanding that that's not going to always be you know the be all and end all for somebody sometimes they want to go and work in a different format and a different learn different types of data and that's that's also totally okay you know yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, I think when you work in a startup as well, like it's easy to get, maybe more so if you're a founder, but like I think it would be easy to get really pissed off when people want to move after a few years. But I think unfortunately the reality in technology is people stay in a job. Um, I think the stats are something like it's every 13 or 14 months or something in technology, people move job. So if you can keep someone for a couple of years, then you're doing very well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, I think it would be wrong to say that, you know, oh, we want people to, absolutely, do you want people to be with you for a long time? 100%, you totally want, you know, um, you know I feel very um, blessed and proud to have been with Hello Soda for five years. Yeah. Uh, but I'm also, you know, practical about the fact that that isn't for everybody. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and depending on what stage in your career you're at, you're going to want different, you know, you're going to want to be exposed to different things and not one, not necessarily one company can offer that to you. Um, and it, it, that goes for like size of company as well. Like I've never worked for a company more than like 1500 people. So, you know, I have no idea what that would look like um, to be kind of put into a company, say of 50,000 yeah, and how I would for <laughs> yeah and uh, yeah and but for some people maybe they want to figure that out and it's just something that they really want to find out so yeah. and that, i think you just have to support that yeah no i saw this someone again the other day about um like moving to a company that was 
I can't remember what it was. It was a decent sized consultancy and they maybe had like a few thousand staff maximum, but they were moving from like a massive bank and they said it was a bit of a risk. And like one of the, the company they were going to join was one of the like most stable employers you could ever get. But because it wasn't JP Morgan or whatever, like they consider it a risk. Whereas if you think about way back when you joined Holosota five years ago, I mean, that was a risk, not moving to a really big company. January, I think it was just right, January 2019, you end up moving uh, to Austin, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Uh, which is where you are just now, which is exciting. Um, so you moved over with your husband, but uh, kind of lucky enough that uh, Holosota had an office there and, uh, and you could go work from there, which sounds pretty cool. Correct. Yeah. So I got exposed to the sales team over here in the Austin office, as well as being exposed to the awesome Austin culture. Nice. Was the biggest culture shock at not raining every day? Probably. Yeah. I mean, trying to explain to people you're going from 300 days plus of rain to 300 days plus of sunshine. Um, when people say, oh, don't you miss England, though? I'm like, no. It's not, <laughs> it's not Austin, even like, England, I mean, though. We can't even... You can't even tarnish England with that brush. It's just Manchester, isn't it? And I love yeah, Manchester, sorry. but it is the radiant place on earth. No, it's cool that you managed to, to kind of go and do that and uh, and work somewhere again, another great city from from everything that I've heard. Um, I suppose quite. Uh, I don't know. It's quite appropriate timing, but you've had to find out how to manage a team remotely for the last year in a different time zone, and now we're all locked down. So you're probably ahead of the curve in some cases. Is that is that right? I I would say it was a it's a been a blessing let's put it that way right so that I'd already kind of was a bit familiar with this kind of remote landscape um and you know my team were the difference that we've got at the moment is they've gone from being a unit that's in the office each day with each other to now also being distributed um and the, the time zone thing last year I was doing very much early shifts to keep up and now I've kind of gone into what I would class as like a normal work schedule. So like I start around 8 a.m. Austin time, which is 2 p.m. UK time. Um, and so that, but before I would say starting around 6 a.m. Um, Austin time, so that was 12 o'clock UK time, just so I could have more more time being online with the team. Um, yeah. And that was hard. I think that was, that was hard. Uh, for at the beginning, it was really like simple. Uh, but it kind of got harder as the kind of the year went on, let's say. So that was the timing thing has been interesting. So the main thing is making sure that we had a, a daily like uh, FaceTime kind of catch up. So that's our stand up. So our stand up went obviously just to a remote stand up. Um, I realized, so I moved out in the January 2019. I went back to the UK office in the March and I really was quite honest with everybody. And I was like, is this working? And I, the general consensus was it wasn't and everybody felt really siloed I was giving people like individual workloads I'm kind of making a hand position of kind of individually like you know shelling out different work to each individual no one knew what each other were working on and there was a lot of like friction there and it was all stemming from the way that I was I was kind of leading the team let's say and so I was kind of Right. Well, I'm figuring this out for myself. Let's let's work together to figure out how we want to to work remotely with me remote 
as a team because I want this to work. And, you know, I've got a brilliant team lead in, in a gentleman called uh, Costas who's on the ground in the UK. So he kind of is our team lead on the ground for the data team there and kind of a great source of both information. So that's that's one of the things that's really worked for us is kind of me being the team manager, but also having kind of a team lead there on the ground has been really like a, a great, a great system. And then in terms of the actual like managing people, I think, I hope I've got better as I've gone on. I felt like I was doing a lot of like, um, you know, kind of uh, networking groups again and different reading about how to remotely manage people before I went. And I think I I felt at the time I was doing a great job, but at the, when I look back on it, I probably wasn't. And I think one of the things from this experience was as soon as kind of with the work from home kind of information happened, I was very honest with people when I said, look, this is this isn't something you're opting into. It's not you opting to work from home. This is happening to you. Yeah. And it's a very different mindset. And so therefore it's okay. This is okay to be, it's going to be okay for the next fortnight or maybe longer to feel like uncomfortable about this. Like people in their minds think working from home is great. But once you're forced into it, it's a very different set. So I think that a lot of the kind of things that I've learned is just being really on as much as you can be being honest and trusting people. And and the, the good thing for yeah. me is that I've developed a relationship with my team where, you know, it, it goes both ways. It's, it's very symbiotic in the sense of like that trust has to go both ways. But it's taken me a long time as a personal, for me personally, to get to that point to realize that, you know, it's okay to kind of take a leap of faith because that, you know, 99% of the time that leap of faith will be, will be kind of received back as well. Yeah. No, I like so, that. Um, yeah, that's, that's the way I've done it. I don't know if that's going to work for everybody, but all I can say, like, and you know, my team know this, I say to them, like, I'm just grateful for how they've responded to this situation. And we're working really great as a little unit. Our next, our next kind of, our next challenge is how we work with the wider team. If this is to go on for a long time with everybody being distributed, how do we, you know, the communication issues that come just from like the words that you use and the way that I talk, you know, I'm a very visual talker. I like it's I'm very much more about uh, how I say things uh, with my hands and my facial expression rather than like the, the words I actually say. Yeah. And so that's kind of one of the things that you notice when you're just relying, say, on Slack or email or no video. I think that's that's a that's for me as a communicator, one of the things I really struggle with is that I need that video time when I want to have a, a chat with somebody. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think you hit the nail on the head about telling me like nobody opted in for this. So like my wife works from home quite regularly so for her it's actually not been a huge step change um whereas we had zero work from home policy and the job that i do doesn't hugely lend itself to working from home so to have it kind of forced upon you is a weird transition and although there is positives in terms of like i'm not commuting like i'm saving lots of time much more time at home like it's just a bit of a strange thing but it isn't really a test run of working from home because we've all been forced to so it's a bit different Okay, I'm going to move slightly away from Hello Soda, if that's okay with you. Since I've known you pretty much, which is around four or so years, uh, you've been pretty active on kind of speaking circuits. So you actually spoke at the very first Man Came Out, which is obviously the best data meetup in the world. Um, Absolutely. And you're only one appearance off, I think I promised you this before you left, you're one appearance off like a special like hat trick appearance t-shirt or polo shirt. So we need to make that happen. Yeah. Um, but do you do that? 
did you start doing that as a kind of challenge to be a public speaker or did you always enjoy it and just felt like that was a really good way of being part of the community? Like what kind of drove your, uh, I don't know, involvement in some of these things? I think I get much more pleasure out of speaking to people. Like I said, the way that I communicate, I'm not a good writer. I don't, well, maybe I might be a good writer, but I don't <laughs> certainly enjoy it, right? <laughs> if yeah, somebody okay. asked me to go away and write a blog, it would be like t like pulling teeth for me. Like it's just, <laughs> I can't imagine anything like less enjoyable. Whereas for me, you know, sitting down, I do get definitely get like um, blank, you know, blank screen, um, like, uh, anxiety when I do a new presentation that is definitely a real thing for me but once I've got over that I very much really enjoy putting a presentation together and I really enjoy delivering it um, and it's just something that obviously the first few times that you do it when it's a you know it's something that it, you know you're very passionate about let's say and you feel like you know a lot about but doing it the first time and like taking those kind of audience questions that's really tough but on the flip side, there's a lot of enjoyment that comes out of it for me personally. And that's why I guess I opted to do that. I think that comes from the music side of me as I've always been, a, I was always performing. Yeah. Um, like part of the scholarship I had was because I you know, had to perform. And I think it's much harder actually to, to perform with an instrument. And I used to, so I play classical guitar and I used to do classical voice. Um, like you can kind of hide behind your instrument but when you sing you've got nothing to hide behind and i actually find it easier therefore with a yeah. presentation because it's like oh here's a presentation to to kind of guide me along my way so i don't get as much i still get nervous but i i know that the benefits for me are going to reward themselves when you know I, I do like a, a, a nice cold beer at a meetup. So afterwards when I can have a nice beer and chat to people about what was useful to them, that's yeah. the reward for me. People coming over and saying, this was really useful or I learned something new or um, I really just enjoyed hearing you speak, even if they already knew everything. Um, that like, I really enjoy that part of it. Yeah, and no, I think you had the nail on the head there as well. Like you said that talking about something you're passionate about. So like, even though I've now done MyQML for, I think it's four and a bit years, the standing in front of everyone at the start to kind of introduce it, like I still hate doing that, like I really do. Uh, and I always, at the start, certainly for the longest time, I would just let Eric do it. Um, whereas if you'd said, can you come and do a presentation on Scottish football for 10 minutes? Like I would stand up with no PowerPoint, no notes and just crack, just crack on with it. Um, so I think, yeah, you're right. The fact that you just love talking about this stuff and, uh, and kind of using some of your knowledge to give it to people or just to uh, talk about something interesting, like it is just that, that little bit easier. But yeah, I mean, we've had, we've had John a couple of times and uh, people always say that uh, the, the kind of actual talks are just super engaging, which I think backs up what you said about being more of a uh, kind of visual communicator. Um, How's it went down? So, give me two questions. What's the difference, or have you noticed the difference in kind of the meetup world in Austin versus Manchester? But also, is there a slightly different? Are you received slightly differently there, being that kind of English person opposed to an American person? I love that question. Um, so I'll take the first one first. So, um, I think just here in Austin specifically, there's just such a bigger wealth of things to go along to that it's actually overwhelming and. It, in a way for the first like eight months that I was here. So I spoke at Texas Day to Day in January, 2019, and really enjoyed that. And that was a great conference. Really, really, the team there are doing some excellent things. Just the, I think um, as, as strange as it might be, or 
different as it might be to say this, you know, Austin is just so ahead of the curve in terms of kind of where the rest of definitely in the data world, let's say, is, um, you know, it's just the, the plethora of kind of things to learn about here is just that you know, it's kind of a step up, let's say, you know, I, I remember when I did, so I did a data leaders round table in uh, Leeds before I left. Um, and one of the questions I asked was how many people are version controlling their data team's code. And out of the, let's say 20 people that were there, only two people put their hand up, one of which was me. Um, and then when I, you know, you come here to Austin, and I mean, maybe there's people listening now who are like smirking and thinking, ha, we wouldn't do that now. So that was the end of 2018. But coming here at the beginning of 2019, I mean, people were just horrified to even hear that there's a data team out there that's not version controlling. So yeah. that's, you know, that's, that's uh, and version controlling their code, not talking about like version controlling models or any of, you know, the, the literal data and things like that. That's, that's another concept in its own right. So just the types of problems that people are dealing with here are just that more um, ahead or in terms of like it's, it's the problems that need to be solved, like version controlling your models, version controlling your, your data sets, these types of concepts. So that's the big that's that's a big difference and then there's a more of a plethora of things to just go along to yeah like in terms of the female or women sorry um so the the events that are catered specifically for those who identify as women um here there's just a, a bigger a bigger set of um opportunities for people to go to so there's like black girls who code there's pie ladies there's um there's there's uh, our ladies there's like a big happy hour that happens that brings together all the different like 15 different female based uh, sorry women based uh, events to go along to um, some of them as well are, are very welcoming of of those who identify as 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 men as well so it, it really just depends on kind of like what the setup is there but there's just that much more of and it's interesting for me because austin is a similar size to manchester yeah. so you've got roughly like eight eight hundred thousand people in the like core city and then two million in the like wider vicinity which is similar size to manchester yeah but it's just so many more things going on here and it was just overwhelming for me because i think i was just about to say before i talked about texas day today it's like their first eight months, I kind of just hid under a shell. I think I was just so overwhelmed by like moving to a new city and understanding all of that. And I'd got this new dog and figuring out lots of different things that kind of like meetups completely then dropped off my hemisphere, like my, my world, let's say. And then I started making a bit more of a proactive effort to go back. And then this year I set my challenge of, of trying to talk at some more, some more meetups. Nice. Um, we've almost nailed the timing. Uh, but I couldn't have you on and not talk about three of your other favorite things. We might have to do a quick fire, but we've got Scottish whiskey, uh, yeah. craft beer. When James can maybe jump on a craft beer as well. So he's uh, actually got a podcast where they just sit and try new beer, like three of them, and they just get loads of people tuning in and working out what's going on. And American football. So three, three different things. So I did some reading on the American football draft, nailed that. Yes. How, yes. how was a virtual draft? So it was awesome because I was on, I'm going to go as quick as I can, but like I was on a Zoom call with the Austin Bengals <laughs> fans. So there was like 12 of us. And so on my Twitter, you might see some photo of us. And I had a yeah, nice right. uh, yeah, yeah, cold yeah. beer from yeah, a local a local brewery here. Uh, what did I crack open? Oh, it's from Central District Brewing. Big shout out to them. They're run by two two techies here in Austin. Um, they've nice. uh, they won last year a gold medal at the GBAF. So very very good local brewery. Um, 
Um, so I had that, enjoyed the, oh, it was obviously going to be Burrow. There was no doubt in my mind, um, but it still took them 10 minutes to figure out that they were going to draft Joe Burrow. But, you know, the anticipation was there. We all celebrated. Um, so it was, it was it was a lot of fun. I didn't dress up as a as a Bengal tiger for the Zoom call. I thought that that might have been like setting my That's an opportunity for my missed. lazy. I know my lazy home uh, kind of casual clothing experience definitely didn't get changed. I was very much just in a Bengal shirt. Um, but I do have this like big Bengals blanket. So I had that. Is there, um, is there any beers from the UK that you wish you could get? Yes. So um, Cloudwater, I'm very much missing Cloudwater, who actually they were, uh, they've been distributing on behalf of Boundary, which is a Northern Irish um, brewery, which, um, and they, they say they got some of Boundary's packs in. And actually my husband is stuck in the UK at the moment. So I sent him on a little pick me up of some Boundary and Cloudwater beers um, with a a note over text saying, I'm very jealous of you enjoying those right now. (laughs) and uh, Magic Rock as well. Um, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to get this right when I say that they're in Huddersfield. So, uh, yeah, and I'm getting a nod from James. Yeah, James, James knows his beer. Um, uh, and you'll find whiskey very easy to come by, I'm sure, in Austin. They love some some Scottish whiskey over there. Yeah, so we're lucky that we live on the east side and two blocks from where we live, uh, there's a bar called Nickel City and they are the one of the best scotch bars here in Austin. It's a dive bar um, and in the month of February, they do scotch month and every day in February is a different chosen bottle by them that they sell at trade price. Oh, no way. So like last year when we partook in this event, um, uh, one of the days they had the old Pulteney 12 for $1.41 a dram, which was a bargain <laughs> at the bar. Um, this year, the highlights were the Balvini 14 year old uh, Caribbean cask. I think that only cost us $2.40, but to buy it out here a dram, it would be like, you know, 80 90 bucks something like that yeah uh, what else was excellent oh singleton uh 14 as well was excellent uh what else did i try that i highly recommend Ooh, <laughs> i can't think of any more it's too much but pressure was, no, I, I didn't i'm prepared for this i should have had my like my whiskey tasting notes um yeah and then while i've been here i actually uh i bought a new kilhoman and had that delivered to the uk because i can't get it delivered out here so next time i'm over i'll be able to crack open a, a dram of that no i like it i like the the crossover of american football scottish whiskey cra- craft beer data science it's all happening um yeah. but no i thought i thought we had to get that on but um thanks for coming on uh it was good to finally get a chance to chat uh and just kind of talk through everything really i think there's some really good stuff for for people to pick up about managing remote teams but also even just some of the little tips from what the hell do you do during covid19 if you've got a team to manage and even if you've got other people who you're not managing directly but influence your team as well so no it was really good I, i enjoyed that so thank you for coming on Oh, thank you so much for having me. I apologize if I waffled way too much. I usually do, but um, it was really no, good to chat about things and particularly particularly whiskey at the end there. You've now definitely got me wishing it was, uh, well, it's definitely five o'clock somewhere, but it is a work day, so I'm going to have to hold out to the weekend. Yes, yeah, so it's almost six for us, so I can do what I want. And just <laughs> lastly, which I always forget to do, um, where can people find you on like Twitter, for example? You said you're quite active on that. Yeah, so you can follow me on 
at LK underscore Fitzpatrick. So that's LK underscore F-I-T-Z-P-A-T-R-I-C-K. Nice. And I think Hello Soda is just at Hello Soda, right? I think it's at Hello underscore Soda. Cool. Yeah. You can definitely find, uh, find you on LinkedIn as well. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Have a really good rest of your day. And thanks for having me on. Well, yeah, that was uh, as about much fun as I thought it would be. Leanne is just super easy to talk to. Um, admittedly, it was actually quite tough getting that into uh, an hour. Um, we could have chatted for ages, especially um, about some of the things we kind of only got a chance to touch on. But no, it was, it was great to hear kind of what, what Leanne's learned from, uh, I don't know, joining a startup right at the beginning to seeing it grow and flourish and go through things like investment and building that team so it's great to hear her lessons and, uh, and how she's approached it um, even more so now in this kind of crazy time. So really, really appreciate her time and coming on. I appreciate you guys for listening and obviously Cathcart Associates for being the kind of sponsor and driver behind kind of all things how AI build this. Um, so thanks for joining. We'll speak to you soon.